Hey, everybody, I want to welcome you again to the Before You Quit podcast, where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard, and man, does it get hard sometimes. That's why we do this. My name is Mitch Schultz. I'm your host. I'm also the director of a ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. i uh, love for you to go to that website, www.fruitfulvineministry.com, and check us out there. Uh, so, in our last episode, I spoke with Ken Sand, who is in a ministry called Relational 360 Ministry. Uh, but formerly, he was for 30 years in a ministry called Peacemaker Ministry. And we talked about, uh, it took the bulk of our time talking about what it takes to bring about peace where there is already conflict. And so for 30 years, that's what he did. He helped people to get out of conflict, to grow in conflict, and uh, basically do mediation and intervention. And uh, so after uh, 30 years of doing this, he had gained enough experience and perspective and, and wisdom in order to uh, come, with a, come up with an approach or an idea or conviction that churches, families, organizations can actually prevent conflict. And so that is what Ken, uh, Ken Sand has been doing since. That's what his, his ministry, Relational 360, is all about. So can you imagine, uh, whether it's in your marriage or your church or where you work, if there was such a healthy environment where conflict is unlikely going to happen, or if it does, the, the context is so healthy, uh, the structure is so strong, there's a healthy community that if there is conflict, it only strengthens the harmony that is there. That's when conflict can actually be good, when the environment is is good, when the Holy Spirit's basically at work and there's maturity and humility. Well, we're going to jump right into this conversation uh, with Ken Sand. I'm going to forego my usual uh, little uh, introductions. I'm sure you're going to miss that terribly. Uh, but since this is a continuation of last time, we're going to go ahead and jump into that right now. All right, we are in a part two interview with uh, Ken Sand. Good morning, Ken. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Mitch. It's good to, good to have you here. Thank you for, for taking the time. You suggested afterwards that we do a follow-up, and I was excited that you were willing to do that. Um, so what we're going to talk about today, you, you mentioned uh, last time, that for 30 years you were involved in, in conflict resolution and you made the transition to a ministry, um, you know, relational wisdom, you call it 360, that is preventive. And uh, give us a, just a brief overview of, um, of what that's all about and how you got into that. And Sure. Um, well, for 30 years, I, it, was, it was a great privilege to be part of Peacemaker Ministries and being involved in I mean, hundreds and hundreds of conflicts, ranging from church splits, divorces, business disputes between Christians, uh, even child sexual abuse cases we got involved. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really amazing to see how God worked in so many of those cases uh, that seemed impossible from a worldly perspective, and yet God brought about some amazing reconciliations. But having said that, not all of them did reconcile. And there's some where you had churches split. <clears throat> Marriages just fell apart and, and all mm-hmm. bad things happened. And even where there was reconciliation, Mitch, there was still a price to pay. Uh, mm-hmm. It's still like a wound. There, there's a scar that's left over. Yeah, there's hurt, lack of trust, and yeah. And, you know, if someone's been unfaithful to his wife, she may forgive, they may go on, but, but that, that scar is there the rest of her mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. So about uh, 2012, I thought, you know, I'd rather devote the, 
the next season of my life to basically getting upstream of conflict, if you will? How, how do we actually help people develop the relational skills that can prevent many of these things? And as a mediator, a big part of what we do is sort of hearing people's story. How did they get mm-hmm. to today? So we sort of go back in time. And when you do that, you, it's like you're going, retracing a route and you come to an intersection where they made a left turn instead of a right turn. Yeah, and, and a lot of people will say, if, if only we had done this differently, it would have gone in a different direction. Hey, just as a sidebar here, uh, I talk to a lot of guys who in their 50s, mid-50s, late 50s are, are in transition. Uh, how old were you when, you when you moved from peacemaking to 360? 59. Okay, you're in your 50s. And, yeah. and that's, uh, that's intriguing because I, I think a lot of guys are, are ready for a change. You know, they, it's not that you're bored or tired, but you're just ready for a, a new season. And yeah. um, in, in your case, it, it was a, a continuing of what you were doing, but, uh, but, but a lot different. So you were energized, obviously, to, to do that, weren't you? Oh, very much. And, and mm-hmm. again, I loved the peacemaking but I was basically, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> I was basically doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And I think God designed us to enjoy newness. I, I look at my mm-hmm. two-year-old grandson, and, you know, every toy has an interest length of about one minute. He just, we <laughs> That's why they're so, that's why toys are so breakable, aren't they? <laughs> that's right. That's why we have, we, we crave new experiences, new mm-hmm. sensations. God designed us, I think, to not just keep doing the same thing over and over. So I, I'm very grateful that what I'm doing mm-hmm. now is extremely fulfilling. Uh, part of the blessing is um, I, I'm, I'm now able to be more selective on what I do. Sure. And I've got my wife and my son and my daughter all working for me. Oh, and that's amazing. That's wonderful. It doesn't get better than that. Nice. That's, you're in your sweet spot, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Hey, uh, define uh, relational wisdom 360. Uh, that's not something that stands out as obvious. And also in one of your blogs, you know, after you answer that question, uh, sum up that illustration that you give of, uh, of people drowning in a river. I thought that was phenomenal because that really sets up what we're going to be talking sure. about today. Sure. Well, let me do that first. It, it's just okay. sort of an easy parable to explain our ministry. Uh, imagine a, a village in Africa, a young man standing by a river, Someone's floundering in the river. He jumps in, pulls the man to safety. Of course, the man's very grateful for being rescued. Uh, next day, he's standing there, and another guy's floating by. He jumps in and saves him, and then another guy. And pretty soon, he has to get a friend down there to help him, and, and they're pulling people out of the river every day. And they say, well, we better get better at this. So they get a <laughs> there, and they get ropes and really make it into a really uh, very, very well-developed and disciplined uh, activity. After a lot of committee meetings, no doubt, right? <laughs> but after a while, uh, an older woman in the village just watching all this says, you know, this is good work that you're doing, but have you ever thought of trying to figure out why all these people are falling in the river? <laughs> and so the elders say, well, that makes sense. So they send some people upstream and they find this old bridge and the planks are rotted away and the ropes aren't very good. And obviously anyone who goes across it is in danger of falling mm-hmm. in the river. So they send a crew up there and repair the bridge, and they dramatically reduce the number of people floating by their village. Occasionally, people still horse around on the bridge and fall in, but mm-hmm. they cut it dramatically. And that's really what RW is all about, relational wisdom, is how do we strengthen people's relational skills so they don't fall in the river of, of conflict quite as frequently. So I still think peacemaking is vital. It's still a big part of our ministry is teaching peacemaking skills. 
We still have a full-blown conciliation ministry of coaching and mediation and arbitration. But I would much rather help somebody prevent a conflict than spend many, many hours putting, you know, resolving that. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. I, uh, you know, with my ministry, I, I'm, I'm probably half of what I do is, is uh, intervention, uh, which is really helping people pick up the pieces and move on. But I love the, the coaching piece of it where you're just helping people to, you know, understand themselves, understand situations God puts them in, how to respond in a godly way. And, and that's preventive, you know. It, uh, yeah, so I, the, the title, what's that about? Yeah, Relational Wisdom 360. The Relational Wisdom is, is just a phrase that we've, we've uh, coined to describe what we do. And it's a way of organizing what the Bible teaches about relationships. Mm-hmm. And so there's two, there's two primary things that we're, we're trying to capture with that paradigm. One is we're designed, God has designed us to be three-dimensional in our mm-hmm. relationships. We're designed <clears throat> to have a relationship with God, to have a relationship with ourselves, and to have relationships with others. Now, the first and last are obvious. Some people sort of get a puzzled look when I say relationship to ourselves. Uh, we're, we're in relationship with ourselves more than anyone else in the world. We're inside of ourselves. We deal with our desires. Our it's, hard, it's hard to get away from yourself, isn't it? We, just, we are. And the Bible talks a lot about that, about search my heart, O Lord. And mm-hmm. uh, David saying, oh, what, why am I downcast this day? And, and to really understand what's going on. So we're three-dimensional, God, self, and others. And so you can imagine the paradigm we use to describe the, or to picture these um, skills is imagine a circle broken into three major sections, God, self, and others. Mm-hmm. Now, in each of those three sections, there's two dynamics going on. One is what we call awareness. What do I know about God, who he is, what he's like, what he's up to? What do I know about myself, my strengths, my weaknesses, my passions, my temptations, my, my dreams, my hopes? And then what do I know about the people around me? Uh, what, what are they struggling with? What are their dreams? How mm-hmm. do I serve them? But knowledge alone, just being aware of those things alone, is not relationship. You have to act on it. So that's what we mm-hmm. call the engaging part. You've got awareness, and you've got engaging. So how do I engage God? The Bible talks about words like trust, obedience, faithfulness, honor, all sorts of active verbs and commandments about how we respond to God. Um, how do I engage myself? The, the, the concept of self-control, self-discipline uh, is commended throughout Scripture. How well do I manage myself, control my tongue, control my actions, etc.? And then finally, how do I engage other people, you know, love, forgive, encourage, serve other people? So those are the, the six basic skills would be God awareness, God engagement, self-awareness, self-engagement, other awareness, other engagement. Now, I'm sure many of you listeners say right right away, well, I don't see those terms in the Bible. And that's absolutely true. It's a human construct. Mm -hmm. You see terms like this. Remember the Lord your God, the one who Mm -hmm. brought you out of Egypt. You see words like faithfulness, which would be a synonym for God engagement, consistent obedience. You see words like humility, being able to look at myself honestly and really be aware of who I am and what I'm like. You see the word discipline, which is a synonym for self-engagement. Compassion would be a synonym for other awareness. And service is the synonym we, term we use for um, other engagement. So the Bible is filled with these concepts. In fact, what I would say, 
Mitch, is you, you cannot find a verse in the Bible that does not fit in one of those six mm. categories. Mm. Every single one does. And the reason we call it Relation Wisdom 360 is those, those skills fuel each other. The more aware I am of God, the more inclined I am to obey Him. The more aware, uh, the more engaged I am with God, the more uh, able I am to look at myself honestly and, and biblically. And then that allows me to discipline myself. The more I'm managing myself well, then I can look out at the world and see hurting people and serve them. The more I try to serve people, the more aware I become of how weak I am in my own strength, and that drives me back to God. Mm. That's the 360, the, the completion of, of that. Yeah, all, I love that. Tools fuel each other. Now, the interesting other thing I'll just add, if any, any of your listeners are familiar with the concept of emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, emotional intelligence is the bottom two-thirds of that circle, self-awareness, self-engagement, other awareness, other engagement. And that's a very popular concept today. Corporations are spending millions of dollars teaching emotional intelligence, or EI, but what they're missing is that top portion, God awareness and God engagement. So we've got what we would call a God-centered, biblically grounded, gospel-driven form of emotional intelligence. Yeah, I love that. In one of your blogs, articles, you talk about the danger of, of the secular approach to this that, that lacks the, the emphasis of the gospel yeah, and and by the way, I I will put links on uh, the diagram that you described uh, on the website, and uh, I think you you probably have four or five great links and what right. you sent me. I, I read through those this morning, and I'll put those on the website as well. So how yeah. how does uh you know practically how does all of this uh, fit into the preventive piece of of conflict? Well, it's just the more aware I am, uh, we, we teach a lot of acrostics so people can weave these skills into their lives and make them second nature. And the most, the, the overarching acrostic we call is a SOG plan, S-O-G, self-awareness, other awareness, God awareness. And in any relational situation, if we consciously seek to be self-aware, other aware, God aware, bring all those factors in, it's a, it's it's a way that we can manage our emotions. We can bring out of the out of the shadows any sinful tendencies that are trying to manipulate us, deceive us. You know, the heart is deceitful. We we think that we're in a, a meeting at the office and saying something very, very appropriate. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we're competing with another coworker, trying to get a position, put that person down, uh, get praise from coworkers. So we don't look in our own heart. And say, now, why am I really saying this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I That's good. Rashly, yeah. but why am I really doing And you think of in a marriage with parents, uh, so many things is just to be much more self-aware, other-aware, God-aware. And it affects mm-hmm. everything. How we, yeah. I mean, literally affects how you engage the clerk at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. It affects how you engage your spouse in the morning. If you wake up in the morning, you say good morning to your spouse, and she responds. But if, you, if you've really learned to listen... You might pick up that this morning her response is a little bit more subdued than normal. You know, normally she's just cheerful and happy in the morning, and this morning she says, oh, I'm okay. That's a huge message your spouse mm-hmm. is yeah. She's yeah. not okay. She's not. Yeah. yeah. By, by the way, someone asked my wife one time if she, because she's always really happy, if she ever wakes up grumpy in the morning, and she said, no, I let him sleep. <laughs> Amen. I had to throw that in there. Uh, yeah, and th- and this yeah this helps us to understand uh, ourselves. And you know, one of the takeaways from this for me is those moments where why am I feeling like this? 
you know, this, these exercises can really help you to kind of go back and, and understand, uh, you know, your own wiring and, and some of the, you love acrostics. We'll look at one that you, you use in just a few minutes here. Um, okay, let's, let's, um, let's move deeper into this. Um, you know, your, your book Peacemaker, which I've been reading, excellent, uh, translated in 17 languages. And um, with relational wisdom, it's obviously a compendium or a build on that. Are you, are you writing on that? Is there a book that's going to be coming out? I know you do a lot of teaching on it. Yes, there, I am working on a book now, and my board has really uh, urged me to get this done. <laughs> it's good to have people push you, huh? <laughs> it is. Well, I wouldn't have written Peacemaker if the board hadn't passed a resolution forcing me to write it. So <laughs> I hope it didn't create conflict. <laughs> no, no, I needed it. I needed it. You know, we're, we, yeah, we are writing a book. We've got a very detailed online course with videos, demonstration videos, Q&A, quizzes, all sorts of quizzes. Yeah, I love that. I was looking through that. It's excellent. Yeah. yeah. You know, let me go back just one minute, Mitch, to yeah. make it as practical as I, it can be on how this lives out in real life. And let me give an illustration of how this self-aware or God-aware works. Um, I've been married for 32 years, and for about 28 of those years, uh, I, was, I was very insensitive to an interesting dynamic with my wife. My wife and I, Corlette, have a different depth perception, distance perception. So when we're driving and I'm getting ready to make a left-hand turn and turn on the signal, I see a car coming in the other lane. My brain looks at it, registers the distance of speed and says, I've got plenty of space to turn. Mm -hmm. My wife's brain works differently. She sees that car. It's, it's half as far away and it's moving twice as fast <laughs> as I think. And to her, when she hears that left signal go on, that car is anywhere in the next block. She immediately feels some apprehension. Now, sometimes mm -hmm. she would grab the door handle and gasp and start pumping the floor like there's a break there. <laughs> and frankly, frankly, it would irritate me. And I'd, I'd think, gosh, mm -hmm. doesn't she know after 30 years that I'm, I'm going to be driving carefully? I've never had an accident. And so I would generally just ignore it. Sometimes I would get exasperated. One time I was so idiotic that after making the turn, I looked back at the intersection, my rearview mirror, and started counting one, two, three, until the car came through the intersection. I turned to my wife and said, see, we had plenty of time to turn. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm guessing there's some couples out there that can relate to this and, and a lot of people who would do that. And because I was technically right <clears throat> in assessing the distance, I thought I was morally right in how I was treating her. Mm. I could have been more sinful. It was awful. And so about three years ago, three, four years ago, I went to turn, make a left-hand turn, turned on the signal. She grabbed the door handle, gas, everything else. And I just, it, it's like time froze for just a minute. And the mm -hmm. Lord gave me grace to walk through that idea of self-aware, otherware, God-aware. Mm -hmm. Nice. Self-aware. Why am I doing it? I, I just mm -hmm. want to save six seconds. I want to prove that I'm right. This is all about me. It was, it was incredibly selfish. I looked at other awareness and I realized my wife is genuinely apprehensive. She's not choosing to do this. Mm -hmm. This is the way her brain is working. She registers differently. I actually think God wired women's brains a little bit more sensitive to some dad because they've got these little kids they're raising. They've got to be yeah, sensitive yeah. to everything. Mm. Um, but she was genuinely yeah. apprehensive. And then I thought about God awareness. And I, you know, what's God got to say about this? That God says, Ken, love your wife as Christ mm. loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus went up on a cross and suffered for hours. Can't I wait six seconds? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, just, I was just immediately convicted. 
So I just waited. I, I didn't complete the turn. I waited and then I waited and I waited. Mm -hmm. And by the time the other car came by, it was very obvious to Corlett that there had been plenty of room. I completed the left-hand turn. She reached over and touched my arm and said, thank you. Mm, wow. Now, every time I make a left-hand turn and I wait, it's a way of saying, I love you. Mm -hmm. I care for you. I'm sensitive to you. It's a relationship builder. It's a blessing to my wife. It enriches our relationship. It may seem like a little, a very small thing, but it was significant. So my, my question to your listeners is, what is your left-hand turn? Mm, where good. where are you being insensitive to some way that your behavior is creating angst or stress in someone else's life? Or where are you being insensitive to an opportunity to bless somebody, some act of kindness or goodness you could do if you just opened your eyes and looked at the people around you and looked at the world from their perspective? That's relational wisdom. I, I love that. That's good. Yeah, and <laughs> in those moments, uh, driving I used to always say in basketball, playing basketball, you find out what a guy's really like. And for a lot of us, it's when we drive, you know, you want to know, you want to know what a person's really like, look at their behavior when they're driving. Well, yes. that's good. That Thank you for the illustrations. That makes it very uh, uh, visible, very realistic. Uh, you seem, you, you're very committed to help the church, uh, you know, not rely on, on experts to come in and teach this. You want to empower leaders and believers to develop skills like, uh, like this of relational wisdom? How, how does that happen? Well, you're right. <clears throat> we, we do want to, um, just one second. <clears throat> Pardon me. We, we, we do want to uh, resist the, the society's trend of saying, you always have to give things to the experts. And the Bible says that the experts on people and human relationships is the pastor, the minister. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I really believe that there's that there's a lot more that, that pastors, church leaders can do to minister to all these relational issues that go on in their bodies. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a place to go to a professional counselor, or psychologist, or even an attorney or accountant. There are professionals out there that have certain expertise. But I think pastors are too quick to delegate relational issues that they really are qualified mm -hmm. to, to do, especially if they seek out training. And develop those the same way they they seek training to learn how to preach you can seek training on how to relate to people and so we've got quite a bit of training we do both live seminars i'll be flying down to missouri on on monday to work with the uh, baptist uh, convention missouri baptist convention they're training its leadership team and we do this all the time we do seminars all around the world actually but we actually even reach more people through our online course it's an, an interactive online course breaks all of our teaching down into like 10 minute teaching segments. We then have demonstration videos. Many of them are Hollywood film clips that mm -hmm. illustrate key relational dynamics. We then have multiple choice quizzes, short essays, Bible study, a series of articles that deal with how do you apply this to, to marriage, parenting, friendships, workplace, politics, whatever. And um, we've taught these principles, interestingly, Mitch, uh, last summer I was back in Washington, D.C., teaching these things to congressmen, Pentagon generals, and ambassadors. Wonderful. So, wow. Uh, they can be applied across that spectrum. Interesting. At the other end, we've got homeschool families taking 10 kids through it, and I, got, I was amazed at what an 8-year-old was writing, mm -hmm. understanding this. So the principles are simple enough for an 8-year-old to understand, and they're, they're, they're um, deep enough 
that their seminary is using them for master's level courses, exact same material. That's wonderful. Yeah, well, it shows how, how needed it is as well, doesn't it? Uh, you know, pa- pastors uh, can tend to maybe over-spiritualize things and we don't factor in, uh, you know, the human brain, the way we're, we're wired, uh, dealing with emotions. And um, the, the, this is really central to a lot of your, your teaching is, you know, explaining why we are the way we are. Uh, and you use a term, uh, again, it's, it's amygdala, is that correct? Correct. Did I pronounce that? Amygdala hijacking. Um, what is that? And also in the blog, you, you say this, that uh, I love this. He said, yes, you are really, uh, you really do get dumber when you're highly emotional. <laughs> so help us out there. That's, uh, you, you've, you've teased that well. And I think general experience would, would confirm that last point, but there is actually a neurological basis. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, to me, if there's anyone in this world that should be a passionate student of the human brain, it should be a pastor. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact is, most pastors, all they know about the brain is it's located somewhere between the ears, and, and mm-hmm. that is literally their <laughs> knowledge. Um, but when you think about it, the human brain is designed by God, I would even say in many ways is the pinnacle of God's creation. Because where, where is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness resident in our being? Mm-hmm. The brain is a huge part of that. And so I, I think that it's, um, I, I really exhort pastors, study the brain. Mm. It, it is something to celebrate. It is something that moves, if you understand, moves you to worship and adoration, admiration, of our designer, of our creator. And then also just realize when a pastor steps into a pulpit, there's basically two things he's trying to do is change the way people think and change the way people behave. Mm-hmm. And both of those things are resident in the brain. We think in the brain and we make decisions and choices. Our will is in the brain. And yet many pastors, they'll just stay just only with God's word and not really take into account the context of this, this brain that God has designed. Now, I think part of the reticence to, to really look at the brain is there's a general apprehension or skepticism of, of secular psychology. So mm-hmm. we think, look yeah. at the brain that we're getting psychology, that's secular, it's not spiritual, we won't go there. And there's a Hebrew word for that attitude, and it's called baloney. Um, <laughs> we, we, we should study the brain. Um, and especially understanding how the brain works. And this idea of amygdala hijacking is, is really crucial. It's, it's what keeps me busy as a conciliator is where people get hijacked emotionally. And here's how it works, uh, Mitch. When data comes into the brain, comes into the spinal cord and into a part of the brain that's called the limbic system. It's where emotions are resident, and that's part of the brain that's right on top of the spinal cord. It's like the entry hallway, the foyer of the brain, if you will. And the first part of the brain it hits is the thalamus, and that's like the receptionist who then sends those, those, uh, that data to other parts of the brain to have the whole brain start interacting with this data. One of the places that, that data goes to, that sensory perception, is a part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is like an emotional and experiential storage room. It's where experiences of life are stored away and they are labeled that this is a good experience or this is a bad experience. For example, somewhere in my wife's childhood, she had a bad experience with snakes. If she even sees a picture of a snake in a National Geographic, 
she recoils from it. That's an mm. amygdala reaction that her eyes see the picture. It goes to that amygdala. It says snake, and snake in her mind is a big red flashy neon danger mm. sign, and she reacts to it. It's not a rational thought. It's an emotional thought. Mm-hmm. And so it could be a, another example is you're, you're about, your boss calls you up and said, would you come into my office, please? Well, uh, yeah, yeah. If, if you got called the principal's office a lot in school, then getting yep. called to the boss's office is going to have immediately your t- stomach will tighten up, your pulse will start, adrenaline will start pumping in your body, you'll be more on edge, your brain is starting to think about all the bad things that can happen in this, in this conversation, and you go in loaded like a rubber band and you may very easily misinterpret and react in a wrong way. So amygdala hijacking is where sensation gets to the amygdala, triggers an emotional reaction that uh, happens before the neocortex, the reasoning part of your brain, gets mm-hmm. the data and starts processing it. We can all think of times we spoke sharply to our ch- a child or a spouse. We blurted out something in the office. Uh, we just reacted emotionally, and right as soon as we say it, we go, oh, I wish I mm-hmm. yeah. said that. So that's what amygdala hijacking is, and that's that's a, a common phenomenon. In fact, I just wrote a blog, went out this morning, about a public official back in New, New Jersey who lost her job just earlier this week because of a confrontation with two policemen. She yeah, was, yeah, that was on the news. Yeah, interesting. So that's classic yeah. amygdala hijack. But there is a way to counter that, and that's one of the things we train on. How do you learn to counter that so you are not hijacked emotionally? And that's the acronym READ. That's the READ. READ yourself accurately. And that stands for recognize the emotion. Anytime you're in an intense emotional thing, mm. Slow down. You need to get not just your limbic system, your emotional part of your brain working, but also the neocortex, which is your reasoning, impulse control, memorize scripture, the good sermons you've heard, all that's stored in the neocortex. Mm-hmm. You need to bring that whole brain together, working together the way God designed it. So read it stands for four steps. Uh, recognize, you know, what is this emotion I'm feeling? And even to name it, even if only mentally, because mm-hmm. in order to put a name to it, I'm, I'm feeling anxiety or fear or apprehension. In order to name it, you have to go to the neocortex because that's where your language skills are located. You have to, it's like you have to open the door to another part of your brain to get that information to name the emotion. That alone brings more of your brain into the mm-hmm. process. E stands for evaluate. Why am I feeling this way? Well, when I was a kid, I got called in the principal's office a lot. I was in trouble. Uh, that's what it is. So it's not necessarily the situation now. A stands for anticipate the consequences. What, what, what will happen if I give in to this emotion? Mm-hmm. And, Good. and then D is, this is the real rational thing. It's okay. Now, how do I take this strong emotion and channel it into a, in a constructive direction? And the metaphor we use, it's like a sailor. You're out on the, on, the, on the bay and the wind is blowing. A good sailor recognizes the direction of the wind. He sees, is, is the storm rising or falling? What's it going to do? He adjusts his sail, and he actually captures the power of the wind to take him safely back to the harbor. Excellent. Um, you know, how, how this is used in, in avoiding conflict is is quite obvious isn't it i mean you're you're self-aware i mean this works too as a collective body right explain how as a church trying to incorporate this understand maybe the the chemistry of the congregation or the leadership how how are you what are you saying to churches when you're talking to them about oh, yeah, this it's it's interesting as uh you know the, the, there's a lot of 
studying being done on these different, what they call intelligences, you know, traditionally it's been uh, intelligence quotient, your mm-hmm. IQ, but now they're looking at emotional intelligence. They're looking at concepts of cultural intelligence, group intelligence. You can have a dynamic within a leadership team in a church or within an entire body. They capture what's often called a culture. It's sort of a general mindset or perspective on life and interaction. And that's why you may have some churches that are very legalistic and judgmental and performance oriented. Mm. Um, You could have some churches that are very oriented toward just doctrine and theology, but there's very little love and very little relationship Mm -hmm. going on. There's other churches that are into all sorts of emotional responses and they're not grounded in good doctrine. So you can be all over the map on Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is how do I uh, get grounded that we are grounded solely in God's word and yet we know that God's word calls us to be highly relational, compassionate, forgiving, tender-hearted, gracious, uh, and having all those things together, good theology, also with good life, good relational skills. Yeah, and I picture a, a pastor meeting with his elders discussing, you know, some antagonism in the church, and these are things that are helpful, you know, why, you know, so-and-so is behaving the way they are, and what is our reaction going to be? It's really a thought-through, prayerful uh, way of, of approaching and, and responding to conflict, isn't it? Oh, I, I've been involved in so many of those conversations, Mitch, and I think mature leaders are able to be patient, forbearing. Yeah, you know, yeah. We have a woman who was raised in a very legalistic church, and she's very concerned about some illustration the pastor used, and, and she's she's always quick to come with her criticisms. And I think, you know, number one is not to become defensive toward her, not to, to berate her, be patient, listen to her, and then to gently try to take the rough edges off that that background she had of legalism and criticism Mm -hmm. and black and white thinking. And the great thing is I've seen people grow. A a tender, patient pastor who is long-suffering and gentle can really help people overcome a lot of those things in their past and, and grow in grace and become conformed to the likeness of Christ. But it takes patience. It takes forgiveness. It takes not being easily offended by criticism. There's a, um, an article, one of our free downloads on our website is actually called Approachability. How does a, how does a church leader cultivate a, uh, a demeanor and a, uh, a reputation in his church that he's approachable? People can come to him and mm-hmm. talk about concerns, raise questions, and even... And not being, not being defensive. Right, right. Mm-hmm. You talk about empathy as well as an important, I mean, approachability and empathy would probably go together. Uh, what, what are you seeing there? You also mentioned that uh, it's important to teach this to children at, at a very young age. Yeah, there's, uh, we just released two new free downloads on how to develop empathy. Uh, again, there's a theological and a neurological part to empathy. Even non-Christians, unregenerate people have a God-given capacity for empathy. Uh, some people, it's it's actually quite well-developed, and other people is completely absent. Uh, and even Christians can be of varying degrees of being empathetic. But there are actual specific steps we give, seven specific steps we give in that download on how to become more empathetic. And for example, one of them <clears throat> is to enlist all of the God-given facilities you have. We have eyes, we have ears, we, we can see somebody, uh, the expression on their face, we can listen to the tone of their voice, we can get this data that will tell us, hey, someone's hurting. Let me give you an example. When I graduated from law school, I was clerking for a federal judge. 
And he was a senior status, so we traveled around the country sitting on appellate courts. And one day we were supposed to fly to D.C., District of Columbia, sit on the D.C. circuit. And the weekend before that Monday, there was a conference of Christian attorneys in Washington or in Chicago. So my judge allowed me to fly to Chicago a couple days early, attend this conference, and I'd fly on Sunday night, meet him, and I'd be in court with him on Monday morning. Um, well, Sunday afternoon, as I'm packing my bag in Chicago, I realized to my horror, I do not, I forgot to pack a white dress shirt. I just had short sleeve polos and a three-piece suit. I mean, I was going to mm-hmm. look like an absolute idiot. And I <laughs> so distressed. I just, how am I, I, I can't get to a store. I don't have time. We got to go to the airport after the conference. I had no car. And I went down to the foyer where the, uh, outside the, the large auditorium where the last plenary was going to be held. And I was just racking my brain trying to think, what am I going to do? I'm going to embarrass my judge. The plenary speaker was a man named Fred Cassidy, an attorney from Los Angeles. I never met him. He didn't know me from anybody. He was walking through the foyer. He passed, and there was probably 200 people in the foyer when he, when he came through on the way into the auditorium where he was going to give his last talk. And I, I was just a, a one face in the crowd. He got like two steps beyond me, Mitch. He stopped, turned around, walked over to me, this total stranger in a crowd. He just said, are you okay? Wow. He had picked up his side-looking visual radar mm-hmm. had picked up mm-hmm. and saw the distressed look on my face, and his brain said, someone's hurting. Someone's wow. hurting. He walked up and said, are you okay? I said, no. <laughs> and I put my situation, and he reached in his pocket without hesitation, pulled out his car keys, and said, I've got a white Impala out in the parking lot. There's a shopping mall down the road. Um, do you need some money? I will never forget wow. that. I will wow. never forget that. Mm. But see, God has given us that capacity. Mm-hmm. You, you can be standing in the grocery store paying for your groceries, and the clerk who's taken your money just found out her mother's dying of cancer. Mm-hmm. And she has a look on her face, and there's a tone in her voice, and she's sending all sorts of signals that most of us have never learned to pick mm. up. Yeah. So we yeah. can develop that. We can develop yeah. That's why this whole thing on, on empathy to develop it, go through those seven steps. But then also, as you said, teach it to children. Yeah, You can start teaching empathy at the age of two years old. That's when they have the capacity to learn to be empathetic. Mm-hmm. So vital skills for Christians, we should be. Yeah. When, when, when the Bible says you'll know them by their love, mm-hmm. another word you could use there is empathy. You'll yeah. know them. Yeah. Yeah, I love that because we are so quick to make judgments or to react to the presenting issues and to stop and say, hey, there's a reason someone's behaving this way, whether it's in church or outside of church or in family. And uh, I want to, and empathy is an open door inviting people to share, hopefully. Uh, It certainly allows us to respond with, with compassion probably more than, than we tend to do. Absolutely. Um, you, you, uh, you talk about relational wisdom being a, a way to share the gospel. Let's, uh, let's end by talking about that. That's kind of exciting to me. That's the end game of all of this. Mm-hmm. What, what can I do to multiply the number of people who will enjoy God forever? Wow. And Jesus himself in John 13, he says that people will know you by the love you have for one another, by your relationships. Mm-hmm. And so when we have really solid marriages where people, in fact, that's what brought me to Christ. I had three office mates as a young graduate student and engineer who were uh, young Christians. They, I heard them on the phone with their wives. They invited me in their homes. I heard them interact. And I thought, man, 
That is mm. the kind of marriage I want. I mean, they enjoy each other. Mm. They love each other. They are kind. They can joke and have fun and laugh together. I, man, I want it. So our marriages, for again, would be our most important relationship. Our parenting, the people who look at us and see that we are self-control, we are disciplined, we are steady, we are consistent with our kids. We're not losing it all the time. How we work with coworkers. If there's a meeting, we listen to people, we listen well, we draw them out. I think if Christians are really developing their relational skills well in the workplace, you know, their, their divisions wouldn't start a meeting without them. They'd say, hey, mm-hmm. we, Mitch isn't here yet. He's always really helpful. Wow. Mm. And then eventually, if, we, if we're living those relationships out that way, people will come to us and say, where, where did you learn this? How did you mm-hmm. develop that skill? And in other cases, we'll, we'll see people who are hurting. Maybe there's a coworker who's just really sort of very, very down today. And we say, hey, man, how, are you okay? Oh, yeah, I'm okay. So, no, really, how are you? Oh, mm. just stuff at home. Really, can I be of any help? Can I take you to lunch? Take someone out to lunch. Show compassion. He spills his guts, tells you his wife is leaving him. Mm. I mean, what a, what a time to talk to yeah. about the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, the hope we have of the gospel. And so there's all the hurting people around us who we can minister to more effectively. And there's all the people who know that they don't have good relational skills. They can see it in us and want to hear about it. And all of that can point back to Jesus, the creator and the sustainer of relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, the gospel is at the heart of all this. And I, I love that we, we can end with that, uh, being reminded that, uh, you know, we're showing the world what, what it means to be like Christ, to love like Christ. And, uh, you know, our, our concern, our, you know, your burden, my burden is that uh, a lot of times in the very community that's meant to reflect Christ, that's called the body of Christ, is, uh, is a broken community that does not do a good job reflecting that. And uh, we're so concerned about that. We want to help churches to, uh, to be healthy. And uh, so I, Relational Wisdom 360 is preventive. It's... Uh, it, it has a, a lot to do with God awareness, self-awareness, other awareness. If we practice these things, and you've given us some very practical ways to do that, uh, we can be a healthy church, and uh, that's, that's our longing. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Anything else that you want to add you feel maybe we did not touch on? or No, I'll, I'll invite myself to a third podcast, though. <laughs> what um, could we talk about on a third podcast? Well, we, we could wait a while on this. I <laughs> okay. But we, we actually have a, it's really going full circle in a sense, Mitch. We do also have what we call a division called the Christian Conciliation Service. And that's to help individuals and churches when they do get a conflict that is more than they can handle. Just yeah, yeah. Just a bad marriage or the church is on a split. And we've got people trained all around the country as, as certified relational conciliators who can come in and either coach an individual pastor, maybe he's got some strain with his uh, leadership team. Mm-hmm. Um, we can come in and mediate. We do full church interventions where a church is on the brink of a split. Um, we also mediate multi-million dollar lawsuits. And the great thing is the same skills our professionals use, we teach to pastors. I think this mm-hmm. is a, an in-house capacity every church should have. Yeah. The vast majority. And I, I'd love to talk about the training we have on how a church can identify and train their own mediators. Well, you uh, you made the offer. I will take take you up on that. So uh, I'll contact you in a in a couple months and and arrange that. And again, your your material is very accessible on the website. The training um, and the, and even the, you know uh, a lot of blogs, a lot of reading 
material that will be helpful, a lot of good resources. So, uh, Ken, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and uh, continue to let the Lord use you as he is. It's wonderful to see. Thank, thank you. you. God bless your work. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you have any comments or questions about anything we've talked about with Ken Sand on conflict or even peacemaking um, on today and last episode of Before You Quit, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us. So until next week, stay encouraged and be courageous because serving Jesus is worth all that hard stuff that comes with it. And remember what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged. <music>